And so a lot of times uh, clients, if they're less experienced, they'll come to you and they'll tell you what they want and you got to figure out what they need. Earlier this year, I was speaking at Adobe Video World and gave a talk called Win Over Clients. There's a moment where I ask, how much are you worth as I survey everybody? I don't mean that in a figurative sense. I mean, literally, how much do you charge an hour? So I had everyone raise their hand and said, keep your hands up if you make $30 an hour or more. A few hands went down. If you make $40 an hour or more, more hands go down. How about $50 an hour or more? Hands drop precipitously. $100 an hour more? There are few hands that are still left up, which is a nice sign to see. Now, I wanted everybody's hand to go down, so I said, how many make more than $500 an hour? Thinking to myself, that's it. That's the one that's going to break everyone's back. Now, I've done this thing before. Once you get to $100 an hour, very few, if any, hands are still up. But at $500 an hour, all hands are down. But there's this one hand that is still up. All the way in the back, who is this person? This is somebody that I need to talk to. I had questions for him. What are you doing to earn that much? I mean, can anybody be worth 500 bucks an hour or more? How'd you do it? What's your mentality? What, what makes you different? Why are you worth so much more? Well, without further ado, this is my next guest. I am Joey Kornman. I'm the basically sh- slightly shorter, slightly less talented version of Christo. Um, we have the same haircut though. I run a site called School of Motion and we're an online school for motion designers. We run training programs for animation and design and character animation and we do free tutorials and articles and podcasts and all of the sort of normal things that online schools do. Um, and I'm very excited to be chatting with you, Chris. Hey man, I think for everybody that might be tuning in, definitely go check out Joey's school, School of Motion. That's schoolofmotion.com, right? Correct. Yep. It's the it's the best training that you can get in After Effects. And I first met Joey at is it Adobe Video World? Was that right? Yeah. 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 And you did something that kind of almost messed up my talk. And I was asking people, how much <laughs> are you worth? How much are you worth an hour? Right. And I would ask people. And I said, everybody raise your hands. And if you're worth 30 bucks an hour, that's what you're getting paid today. Then keep your hands up. And then 50 and then 100. And then hands start dropping like flies. And then I say, 500 bucks an hour? And Joey still has his hand up. And I don't know who he is. He's in the back. And I'm like, oh my God, look at you, dude. You're awesome. (laughs) And, you know, that's how our kind of relationship began. And then we kind of met up right afterwards, kind of in the cafe, whatever. And I started asking you all these business questions. So, I would love not only just to talk about what you do, how you do it, but also the business aspect, if you don't mind sharing with everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll say that I remember that day very well. And I kind of was operating on autopilot. Had I known my hand would be the only one still up, I probably wouldn't have done it. I was very, it was very <laughs> uncomfortable. And all the, all my friends that I was sitting with looked over me like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. And I should say too, like, because uh, you know what my my the reason I felt awkward after that was because I'm like oh crap everyone's gonna think I'm rich or something I don't actually charge five hundred dollars an hour it's a mindset thing and I assume that that's what you were getting at in that talk <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should charge that much did everybody hit you up for a free drink or 
dinner. Oh, I paid afterwards. for it. Believe me. Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> the company card was hit hard that day. Nice. Okay. Awesome. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned a mindset. Can you talk about that? I was talking literally like who is getting paid so much money and why are some people getting paid more than others? And mindset has a lot to do with it. You can't achieve something that you don't know what um, that goal is. Exactly. So I kind of approach, so I came at it from a slightly different angle, which is this. So um, in the process of building School of Motion, which it's the first business I've ever run all by myself. Um, I don't run it all by myself. I have a staff. But what I mean is I didn't have business partners that knew more than me. I was kind of the, the head. Um, and I have what I think a lot of entrepreneurs uh, suffer from, which is Superman syndrome, where you just try to do everything. And so in order to, to learn how to scale the business, once it sort of became successful, I hired a business coach. And this business coach had me do this exercise because she noticed that I was doing a lot of things that I shouldn't have been doing. I was um, answering support emails and I was writing and scheduling Facebook posts and all these things. And so she made me do this exercise, which was basically how much would you pay someone else to do those things? And, and, and so, you know, I, she was like, come up with an hourly rate for yourself and let's just pretend it's a hundred bucks an hour. Would you pay someone a hundred bucks an hour to answer support emails? Well, no, of course not. You, you like, that's, that's ridiculous, right? Um, okay, cool. So then you shouldn't be doing it. You should be paying someone else to do it. Um, and so, you know, as you build a business, eventually you just sort of raise that number up to where, at that point, when I was listening to you speak, I had just done this exercise, and the number I think was a thousand bucks an hour, and it's not actually what I make or what I pay myself by any stretch, but that's the number where if I can pay someone less than that to do it, I will, as opposed to doing it myself. That's a great exercise. Uh, funny yeah. how timing works out that way. I've yeah. done the exact same exercise except for I did years ago, and my business coach told me this is how you learn to utilize your time and to be a more efficient person anything else that you can delegate to another human being you should do it save only the most critical things for yourself because when you're not minding your business you're just in the kind of muck if you will making stuff and then you realize one day you don't have any more clients you're not doing any marketing and you're not planning for the future so it's very interesting and i was talking about it now just to kind of back up a little bit and give a little context to the people was literally there are moments when I'm working for a client where I'm getting paid more than a thousand bucks an hour. And what I've realized is that if you learn to ask really smart questions, your value goes up. And that seems counterintuitive, especially to anybody that's in the kind of maker culture mindset, right? Because the professionals, what they do um, better than the amateurs is they diagnose the problem. Right. And I work with young people and when I give them the brief, they don't ask me any questions. They just go make stuff. And they come back and say, oh, my God, this is so wrong. I wish you would have just asked me two questions because you're so eager to show me what it is that you know that you wind up showing me what you don't know. That's one of the biggest and it was actually a tough lesson for me. So in a previous life, I, I did run a studio for four years. And when I started and I would get on calls with clients, you know, these big conference calls, I, you got, you must have been on millions in your lifetime, but, oh, wow, it's scary to think about. But anyway, I'd get on these calls and initially I was just so excited to do the project 
that the client would say something like, all right, so we need a spot and we're tying in with like this movie and, but it's a, it's a commercial about sandwiches. Um, and we need some ideas and I would just like instantly have ideas and I'd want to go do them. And, and then like, we wouldn't win those jobs. And then I, you know, my two business partners who knew more than me, they, they kind of coached me and they're like, you need to dig a little bit. You need to find out like what's actually important. Is the movie more important? Is the sandwich more important? Like, you know, do you, like, are there things that they never want to do? They never want to see like their sandwich altered in any way. And, and by digging and digging to, you know, find out what that client actually needs, you know, uh, then you can literally like be a sniper and just, and just nail that, you know? And, um, and then when you get to that point, you're right, they keep coming back to you and eventually they'll pay you whatever you ask. Well, since there's a bunch of motion people probably listening to me because they're seeing your name, Let's kind of make this a little bit more concrete. So if you're a solopreneur, if you're a one or two person shop and you're doing motion design and you're talking to a client of any scale, what are some of those? Do you have like some go to questions that you use uh, back in the day when you were doing service work that that helped you kind of do that dig that you talked about? Sure. Um, so really like the the thing that if you're talking to an ad agency and you're talking to like a really experienced creative director they're usually pretty good at at breaking it down for you. But, you know, in the initial days of Toil, which was the name of my studio, um, you know, we, we weren't getting the big jobs. We were getting sort of like the mid-level, um, you know, stuff and the low-level stuff. And so you're working with people that a lot of times, actually, this is something I, I, I try to teach people when I talk about freelancing, is your clients know a lot less than you do a lot of times about what they're asking. All they know is they need a commercial and a you know it's like it's like when someone asks you how much does a commercial cost you know it's like well it could be a dollar it could be like 10 million dollars right <laughs> um, so i always tried to figure out what is the problem that this commercial solves and it's kind of a weird way of thinking about it i think it's something that it's easy to forget when you're in the trenches and you're in after effects and you're animating and oh it looks so cool look at that well like the problem that you're trying to solve is not we need something cool to put on tv that's not the point of commercials or explainer videos or you know even when you talk about like a a graphics package for a network i mean yes it should look cool but that's not the problem it's solving hbo doesn't say we don't have anything cool to show you know, it's like, and, and when you get into that level of doing, you know, rebrands and stuff, the problem that you're solving is actually, I think, a l- little more complicated. But when the problem is we want to, um, you know, like for the, for the example I used, uh, it was for the Green Lantern movie and it was for the sandwich chain. And they basically, like, if you get right down to it, they want to kind of, I wish I could think of a better word, but they want to leech off the brand equity of the, that Green Lantern movie and suck some of that onto their brand so that it kind of makes them cooler. That's the, that's the problem that you're trying to solve. And so if you look at it that way, it becomes a lot clearer what the important things are and what, and what they aren't, you know? And so, and so in that example, um, you know, we, we basically took some of the effects from the movie and subtly incorporated them into the food footage and the way that the spot was edited with music and it was fast paced like the movie. So essentially we tried to like make the sandwich commercial feel like the movie and it was intercut with shots from the movie and stuff like that. Um, And so, you know, it it became a lot clearer than, than if I had just gone ahead and been like, okay, so I've got Green Lantern plus sandwich chain. 
um, okay, cool. Well, I could do this crazy thing and I could have this crazy energy tunnel and it, you know, that's not what they needed. They needed their brand to become cool for 30 seconds, like the movie. I love that example. Yeah. And I remember early on in my career, I thought it was about me showing off what I wanted to do or that new style I wanted to try or these experiments that the clients were going to pay me for and pitch after pitch, we didn't win. No surprise there. So I think there's a lot of knowledge you're dropping on people. So let me just rewind the tape in my mind a little bit here. One of the questions that I think you have to figure out with the client, regardless of the size, it could be a mom and pop that you're making a, like an explainer video for or a tech startup, whatever it is. You need to know what the mandates are. Meaning if we deliver something to you and if you hire us, this has to be there. It has to be, here's an example. It has to be 30 seconds long. It has to be HD or 4K. It has to have our brand colors, which are Pantone, XYZ, whatever it is. Those are the mandates. It needs to feature a young person eating food in your example. And they need to um, maybe be biracial so that we can hit a larger demographic. It's those kinds of things. Those are the mandates. And sometimes they're referred to as the sacred cows, the untouchables. Like you you have to end it on a three-second button of the logo. We got all that stuff. That part is um, hard to screw up as long as you know what they are. And sometimes something that sounds like a mandate from the client isn't. And some things that are variable actually are mandates. And so that leads us to the second part of the question. Now, now we kind of have the sandbox kind of defined for us a little bit. We can explore within that. So do we assume that the last three spots or the campaign that you launch should inform this thing? Like what are the variables now? What do you want us to play with? Because we don't want to come back and show you an idea and you're like, huh. I kind of, I'm underwhelmed, guys. I, I wanted you to push it farther. And so if you define those two categories and you know and use those as anchors, you're off to a really good start. You have now, I think, a 50% chance better job of winning it than had you not asked those questions at all. Yeah, and to get back to what you said about, I mean, you know, the whole point of like asking questions um, I, what I found is that when I was dealing with really senior level creatives, they were thinking already on that level. So it actually made the, the pitching part easier because you kind of had all the information. It was harder when you got junior creatives who might have just been parroting what they had been told. And so something that sounds like a mandate, hey, we need a 30 second fully animated spot for um, this chain of stores that sells diamonds. Okay. And then you dig a little bit. Well, why does it need to be animated? You're selling diamonds. Diamonds are beautiful if you shoot them with a camera and you could just do some cool lighting and make it stylized and sort of surreal and not animated. And and it might actually be cheaper to do it that way and more effective. You know? And so you dig and you're like, well, what is the point of this commercial? Is it to raise brand awareness and make that brand cool? Or is it to sell more diamonds? Or is there some special on diamonds? You know, whatever it is. And if it's, oh, well, you know, their sales are down. Okay, cool. So we want to sell more diamonds. So what's going to do that? Is it going to be like, you know, a hand model wearing a diamond and like some beautiful music or is it, or do you really need to like do a bunch of CG stuff and make this, you know, and spend months in After Effects, like animating something. Um, And so a lot of times uh, clients, if they're less experienced, they'll come to you and they'll tell you what they want and you got to figure out what they need. Mm, Perfectly said. Now you brought up something about Green Lantern food. And diamonds. Are these two things you've actually worked on, or you just have this example just pop up in your head? Oh no, I just made. No, I've actually worked on on these things. I've had a. Uh, <laughs> I've I've sold diamonds, shoes, sandwiches, <laughs> insurance, <laughs> banking. <laughs> I've done it all. Excellent. Okay, 
One other thing that you had mentioned that I want to just expand on a little bit is the clients often know less than you and they have to because they're coming to you to hire you to do your craft and that's great. So you have to realize that some of them are a little intimidated. Now, just realize we've been talking a lot about commercials. So that's usually a team of people on the other side of the phone. And that includes a producer, a creative director, an art director, copywriter, and some other people. And you know, the thing is, when you're intimidated, you you don't want to say something that makes you sound stupid. So they're being very thrifty with information. They're basically reading over the script or whatever other thing they got going on. And then they kind of just leave it to you to figure out. And the more savvy ones will actually kind of just let you hang yourself, if you will, because they have to decide a couple things. Who are they going to partner up with? Who's going to bring something to the table? And who can I get along with? So you have to make it comfortable for them. You have to invite them in and you have to use language that they understand and not necessarily your language. So if you start talking about animation curves, uh, what else, what other kind of technical terms you can drop on them, uh, how you're going to composite with this kind of layer that transfer mode, you're going to lose them in a second. So realize that they're intimidated. Realize that you need to find that common ground, that language to help them help you ultimately. Because if you can't do that, they're not going to give you the gig. Yeah, and I think it's counterintuitive, especially when you're early in your career, that someone would be intimidated. And maybe that's kind of a strong word, but I think they they are feeling a little uncomfortable talking to someone about design and animation when they themselves, they might be the producer calling you. And they are familiar with it, but they understand that they they could very easily slip and say something really silly about design or animation, call it the wrong thing, and then they'll feel silly. So I think that's why um, even you know even people who are really experienced, creative directors at ad agencies, but maybe they don't use After Effects. They probably don't. And uh, and if they do, then they should do that. Um, how how much is an hour of your time worth? Exercise uh, for sure. <laughs> uh, but you know, but I think that's counterintuitive. Like they are a, a little afraid, like everybody, of saying the wrong thing and putting their foot in their mouth. Um, so I think that's really good advice, Chris. You know, you just kind of like you know they're going to give you rope to hang yourself. And I think another thing I I tried to do was. Um, you try to, this is just kind of like a social engineering, like, you know, building rapport thing where you try to talk like them. And I, I was lucky that I had freelanced for years before that inside of ad agencies. I would do a lot of work. Like I'd go in and I'd be kind of the in-house guy for a week or whatever. And so you kind of learn how agencies talk too. And so you use those same words back to them, you know, like, um, at that time, organic and analog, like, you know, words like that, where, you know, you wouldn't use the word grungy. That's not, you know, like a motion designer might say grungy because you kind of know what that aesthetic is. You've seen it. But like if you say grungy to an art director in that agency, that might mean cheap to them. What they really mean is make it look analog, make it look organic and realistic. And and so just using the right terms, it also kind of tells them like, oh, this person speaks my language. They get it. They're not going to like, you know, do something off brand. That was actually another thing too. I used the the term on brand in almost every phone call because I know that you, you mentioned the, um, what are the, the mandates and for an ad agency, especially, or, or in a network, I mean, for most clients staying on brand is just paramount, especially an ad agency where, um, you know, the sandwich example, this was like the biggest account this ad agency had if they screwed up and lost it you know, 150 people get laid off. So on brand was actually kind of a trigger word that I learned to use. 
That's a great word. So you guys that are listening, I've used this word before when I'm giving feedback to people who are working on our channel when they're making graphics or uh, a show open. I said, you know, you guys, this is not on brand. Assuming that these young people knew what I was talking about. And then they look at me, it's like, what do you mean on brand? So explain to the people what that means. This is a this is a deep conversation. I mean, I think <laughs> so. Like at a, at a, a basic level, uh, a brand, you know, you can think of it like, okay, well, if you're doing a commercial for McDonald's, let's say, right? Well, I mean, everyone listening, let's like, just say, what what Joey. is what is what is what are the colors of McDonald's? Right? It's red and it's yellow. Those are their colors, and it's a and it's a specific yellow. It's like a little gold. There's a little bit of red in it. So. Um, so if you do a spot that's fully animated spot for McDonald's and the color palette is like white and green and blue and there's no red and no yellow in it at all. And then you turn the arches, some purple color, like you're taking a big risk that, you know, they might go for it, but it doesn't look like McDonald's. Right. So, so there's the visual end of the brand, but then there's also like, and this is the part that, that I really like to dig in and push when clients would let me is sort of the voice um, and I guess the uh, the personality of the brand. So a brand like McDonald's in this example is probably a bad example because they're, they're very broad. They do a lot of different things. But like Red Bull, for example, right? Like when you think of Red Bull, if you tried to personify Red Bull and turn Red Bull into a person, it would probably be like, you know, some cool skydiver, skateboarder, wingsuit, you know, like thrill seeker. Um, cool. So how would that person act if, if they were making a commercial? Would they, you know, like, would they use Mondrian paintings as a reference and be very static and geometric? Or would it be really crazy, fast paced, cell animation and in your face, right? So th- th- this is kind of how I would think about it. If you're doing a commercial for Bank of America, you're probably not going to be doing anything really fast and flashy, Right. It's going to be clean. It's going to feel uh, legitimate and solid, you know. And and um, and by the way, these are words like I would use on a conference call. Like I just said the word. It's going to feel solid. What the hell does that mean? I don't know, but it feels right. And like if you read their brand book, you know, you'll see that word in there and stuff like that. So, um, and and to be honest, it kind of that's something that it's kind of a feel that like you just develop after doing a lot of work, you kind of look at it and you know, like, okay, that animation's too loose for Bank of America. There's two. And, and then as an animator, you can dig in and be like, okay, well, it's Bank of America, you don't need the thing to overshoot and oscillate back and forth 20 times like a rubber band on a Bank of America commercial, it should be cleaner and just lock into place because that says solid, well-built, you know, uh, versus Red Bull, maybe the thing shoots up and bounces back and forth and there's this sound effect and, and then there's particles flying out because that makes sense. It feels more loose and dangerous. Um, so that's sort of how I would, I look at brands and then that's sort of how it translates into the work. Mm, perfect. Okay. I've been taking a lot of notes here. I think I'm going to try to tie in two things that you're saying. Uh, when you're trying to build rapport with a client, uh, we just there's a term that you guys can look up. It's called match and mirror. So you want to sound like them. You want to speak like them. But when you're doing work for their client, the brand, to be on brand, you also have to match and mirror. It's almost as if the brand reached out uh, onto the keyboard and started making stuff. And so a couple of the things that you guys can think about is what is the tone and the voice? Think about the brand and tone and voice. How do they sound in your mind? So McDonald's might be fun, healthy, welcoming. That's the thing. Uh, Red Bull could be um, 
challenging, uh, rebellious. That could be the, the tone. It could be confrontational. It could be fun, but in a different kind of fun. So I'm not that sharp this morning, but you know, you could look it up in the thesaurus and find a different word for fun. You mentioned the colors, <laughs> the graphics, basically the visual palette, the type. So if they've never used a serif typeface before and they've always used a distressed sans serif typeface, well, you want to keep it on brand unless they're going to rebrand. And that's why sometimes what we talked about in terms of mandates, what you assume it to be, isn't always the case. And the other thing that is a little less tangible is what are the values? What do they believe in? That's really critical. And so yeah. sometimes you can ask those kinds of questions. So when you look at a McDonald's spot versus, say, a Red Bull, Red Bull spot, they feel very different. And we can talk about that a little bit, meaning Red Bull wants to be very kind of of the moment. Uh, they don't care about production quality. They rather they, they probably are more interested in authenticity and, and being genuine and of the moment. So you're going to see uh, GoPro footage. You're going to see a bunch of mixed cameras. You're going to see something that might be overexposed and a much smaller, uh, nimble crew. McDonald's, totally the other side, because I've done a right. McDonald's spot before. They have food stylists come out. They have their chefs fly out and prepare the food so it looks a certain way. And literally, they bring it out of the oven. It's the freshest McDonald's you'll ever eat, right? And they put it on the plate, and it's only good for 30 seconds, and yep. then they throw it right in the trash, and they make you a new one so that the cheese is melted a certain way, and they use steamer. So they're on the other end because they care and want to control the brand image and they care about that. So you have to be very careful about how you handle it. Yeah. And also one, one interesting thing is that brands, sometimes the brand voice, it, it doesn't, it's not obvious that it would go with that brand. So we used to do work for, um, progressive insurance. And if anyone's not familiar, it's a car insurance company. And I think they sell like home insurance and stuff like that. Um, it's an insurance company. It is the most boring business on the face of the planet. However, Progressive has that um, spokeswoman flow. And you can look on YouTube. There's a million commercials. And she is quirky and weird. And, and, she does, and the commercials are bizarre and surreal. And we did this stop motion piece for them. And it was supposed to look like Flo had done stop motion, like in her apartment or something. So it was all made out of like things you'd find around the house. And it was so weird. Like... It was just the most ridiculous story, and we were had stuffed animals and like Barbie dolls, and it was just the strangest thing ever for an insurance company. And so you really have to understand, like, you know, I mean, the easiest way is just to look at what they've been doing, um, and and just sort of like ask yourself these questions, like, okay, well, like, is you know, are they is comedy okay in this brand? With with some brands, no, it's not. They don't want it to be funny ever. Um, you know, and, and, and they've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And that's actually, I think why working on a rebrand is really difficult because it's not only like, what should it look like? It's like, well, now what's the brand like they you know, they're changing their voice. Are they, you know, are they like more serious now? Are they less funny? Or are they, because maybe like the company's older now, so they don't feel like they need to be as, whimsical like they kind of want to be more and 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 that you know that's when asking questions is your best friend because the client may not even know that until you ask them uh, i'm glad you brought up that example and i just started to realize actually most of the insurance companies do some pretty edgy stuff because it's really boring and prosaic farmers yeah. they have this series about like things they've actually insured before like a weird squirrel and catching a uh, house on fire or something and right. geico's got that little gecko or yep. the pig 
and he's screaming. You know, it's it's hilarious. Yep. So you're right. Uh, it's not always what you think, and it's playing what they. I guess in if you're looking at a movie, they're playing against type. You know, like Brad Pitt's type is a leading man, handsome, a good guy, and that's what we expect of him. Every once in a while, he plays against type, and then he's the bad evil guy. Right. He's he's a probably a bad example because he plays a lot of different roles, but that's playing to type and playing against type. More to come after a quick break. Be back in a minute. Hey yo, John Roth here from the future. I'm here to tell you guys about the pro membership. A lot of you have been asking about how you can engage with us and where you can go to meet like-minded individuals. Well, I'm here to tell you how. For $75 a month with the pro membership, you can join Chris Doe's collective of creative entrepreneurs, which includes everyone from designers to strategists to writers and more from all over the world. Also included is over 40 hours of exclusive videos on a variety of topics, from the business of design to project management, and access to two pro calls a month, where you can have your questions answered by Chris live. All that and more in your pro membership for just $75 a month. Not afraid of commitment? Sign up for a year and save $150. The Pro Membership, exclusively in the online store. Go to thefuture.com slash shop for more. All right. I think we just dropped a lot of knowledge here. That was awesome. Thank you for doing that. I want to talk about business now. Cool. So this is for all the entrepreneurs that are listening. I so admire your business model, and I feel like... In a way, of course, we're not related, but you're like my big brother. I'm looking up to, and I'm like, you know, Joey's doing Stop it right. It. <laughs> I want to do that one day. One day, I'm going to be Joey. So let's talk about your business. When did you start this? Why did you do it? And what's happened? Like, give us some of the peaks and the valleys. Sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you for saying that, Chris. I I look up to you, and it's just very surreal to hear you say that. Um, so School Emotions started as um, I. Th- I actually don't know how many businesses start the way mine did. Um, I I started it initially because I felt trapped in the life I'd built for myself. I actually wrote about this. uh, There's a motionographer post called Too Old for MoGraph you can find. Um, Got a lot of of comments. I think I touched a nerve. But basically, I I was a creative director at a studio I'd helped start, and I was um, basically miserable. I, I realized I had... I think a lot of people get on like a train track when you're five years old, like your parents place you carefully on this train track and they say, just follow this. And then you do that. And that leads you into a full-time job with, you know, paid vacation time and this and that. And then, so I ended up there and I was like, this sucks. So I wanted, um, I wanted a way of generating an income and living a life that did not require me to sell my time anymore. That's how most people make their money is they sell their time for money. Uh, and I realized at some point that like that's just a flawed model like if you're if you have that entrepreneur itch thing. So Wait, wait, how old um, were you? I was I think I was 30 or 31 at the time. So I was like oh. into my career already. Yeah, I st- I started late. <laughs> I so I learned Yeah. You're 31 and you're saying yeah. I got to do something else. I'm too old for Mograph at this point. 
Is that yeah. what you're saying? <laughs> well, too old for MoGraph was like the the clickbait title to get people you to know, read it. There's like people vomiting in their mouth right now. Come yeah, on. no. What's well, funny? And the point of that article, by the way, like it was partially about like wrong mountain syndrome, is what I called it. Where like you're climbing a mountain for ten years and you don't even once look up and look around and say, "Wait, do I still like this mountain? Should I be on that mountain over there?" And you get to the top and you're like, "Oh shoot, I climbed the wrong mountain." Um, but it was also about the fact that like I. Everybody around me uh, who was my age was like either still freelancing or they were a creative director and everybody older than me owned their own studio and then it stopped. Like I didn't know any 50 year olds like in the industry. I knew very few people in their 40s Um, and I knew a ton of people in their 20s. So I was like, what? Where is everyone going? Like they're disappearing. So anyway, that's a different conversation. But I started School of Motion initially. I was like. I want a way out of this. I want a way out of this, like get on a train every morning, go sit in this chair and hustle and and call clients and and do work to keep the lights on and this and that. So I started a blog. And the reason I started a blog was because I saw Grayscale Gorilla starting to do well. And I saw, I told him this recently. I was like, dude, I literally just like saw what you're doing. And I said, that looks fun. I could do that. Um, and the truth is the best part of my day at toil was we, we would have interns and we had junior animators and like younger freelancers we'd hire. And I'd, I'd sit down with them and I'd give them boards and I'd be like, how are you going to do this? And they would tell me and I'd be like, all right, here's a smarter way. And I'd show them and, oh, and that light bulb would go off. And I love that. So I just started a blog. I started making tutorials. I had no idea what I was going to do with it. And I just sort of sporadically made tutorials like for a couple of years. I think I ended up making like 20 or 30 of them and slowly but surely people started emailing me. Uh, I heard on some podcasts I should collect emails. So I got a plug in, I collected emails. And by the time I was ready to quit toil, I probably had two, 3000 people on this email list. Wow. And, um, That's great. Wait, wait, we had, what year was this now? This would have been 2013, I think. Okay. Yeah, not that long ago. You started not that blog. long ago. Yeah, I think it was officially 2013. So it's okay. almost coming up on four years. Wow. Um, so anyway, so then I, uh, so then me and my, th- that was like a very tumultuous period for me personally. Like I was burnt out and I had realized I didn't like living in New England anymore and neither did my wife. And we moved to Florida um, and I left the company, we sold our house, we left my wife's family, we moved to Florida and I kind of wanted like a safety net. Cause I was like, I have no idea how I'm going to like pay our bills. And there, I don't think there's a big like MoGraph industry in Florida. Um, so I looked on motionographer and I saw an, an ad for a teaching position at Ringling. Um, so there's a amazing school in Sarasota, Florida called the Ringling college of art and design, one of the top art schools in the country. And they had a motion design department that was like four or five years old and they needed a faculty member. And I thought, well, that's ironic. I just started a blog where I'm teaching people to do motion design. And that was my favorite part of my job. And we wanted to move to Florida. We took a trip to Fort Lauderdale. We fell in love with it and we're like, let's move to Florida. So it was like the stars aligned. And I, I sent in an application and then they were, got really excited and they recruited me and, and hired me. And I taught there for a year. And during that year, I didn't touch school motion. I had no time. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into this in a little bit, but I left Ringling <laughs> after a year. I just decided it wasn't a great <laughs> fit for me anymore. And I, and, I, and I said to myself and my wife, I was like, look, you know, I can freelance from Florida. It's really inexpensive to live here. And we've built this this great, I was way happier making a quarter of what I had 
been making it toil, teaching at Ringling, and living in a smaller apartment with one car, riding my bike to work. I, this was one of the happiest times of my life, actually. I realized I could freelance, and we could live in Florida, and we'd be just fine, and we don't need to, like, kill it. It's, you know? Um, but... When I quit Ringling, they were still paying me through the summer. So I had this three-month period where I was like, I could focus full-time on School in Motion and see if something can happen with this because that would be really cool. So I did this thing called the 30 Days of After Effects. And what I did was I just put it out there on the internet like I'm going to do a tutorial every single day, Monday through Friday for 30 days. And I promoted it and I actually got Ringling to sponsor it. Uh, And I just started making them as fast as I could. I got about a two-week head start, and then boom, they started running. And it was crazy. Once it started, and I was releasing these things daily, I started getting 100, 200, 500 new emails a day on my list. Motionographer wrote an article about me. Um, And all of a sudden, like at the end of this thing, I was exhausted. I survived it. But now I had like eight or 9,000 people on my email list engaged, like emailing me, telling me, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever seen. I just used this on a job. Oh my God, I love the way you teach. And I realized like, huh, there is a way to, to do this. And so that's when I hired my first business coach and um, ended up deciding I would try to make a course because what I really, I, you know, I looked at what Nick was doing, Grayscale, and, um, you know, they were selling plugins and I had actually tried that and it didn't work very well. I, I don't like, I'm not a coder. Um, I don't want to be offering support for software. I don't want to be every time, you know, the software after effects updates and then I, it breaks my thing. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to sell what I'm good at, which is teaching. So, um, I outlined this course and I said, you know, this course is gonna be like six weeks long. It's going to be a ton of work. And like for me to make, it, it's going to take three months. Um, and I don't know if anyone's going to buy this thing. So my business coach gave me some crazy advice, which in hindsight is so obvious. And we do it every time now for every product we pre-sell it. So I did a live webinar as my first ever. And I sent an email out to these, you know, eight, 9,000 people. And I said, Hey, I'm, um, you know, I'm thinking of starting a class to teach people how to animate. Cause I feel like that's a big hole. No one knows how to animate in after effects. And there's a hundred spots because I did the cheapest go-to webinar account I could I could get. There's only a hundred spots. Go sign up. It filled up in like two minutes. So I'm like, huh, okay, maybe there's actually a need for this. And then I get on the webinar. I do this whole thing like this is what's going to be in the class. This is why I think you need it. Here's an example of what I'm going to teach you. Here's the buy now button. And I crossed my fingers and I had 20 spots that I was going to sell and they sold out in like five minutes. Um, and it was like, I think I, I sold them at the time. It was like 250 bucks a pop and it was five grand in five minutes. And I did the math and I'm like, that is the fastest I've ever generated money. Like I had, this is the model now because I wanted to escape my hours for dollars. This is how to do it. And as soon as that webinar was over, my email inbox exploded like, oh my God, please open up more seats. I need this. That's exactly what I need. So I opened up 20 more spots. Those sold out in a minute. Um, so that kind of told me that that there was a need for training that was more comprehensive. Um, and the thing that really separates us from a lot of the other the other sites out there is that it's interactive. Like you get content and you watch a video, but then you you do the work and you're critiqued and you are assigned someone who like their job is to critique every single thing you turn in. And you're talking with the with your teaching assistants and other students. Um, and so we basically 
stumbled into this model of now we've kind of solidified it. It's content, critique, and community. You put those three things together, you get something really special. And since then, I've just tried to double down on that model and we've built more courses and we've hired teaching assistants. And at this point, there are five of us literally full-time working on School of Motion. We have 10 teaching assistants all over the world. Um, we have two instructors besides me who have built courses and there are three more in production and we're moving off of our old software platform and it's grown like, it's crazy that it was only four years ago that I like registered schoolofmotion.com and now it's, it's grown very fast. Well, congratulations. For those of you guys that don't know this, and I'm not saying this because Joey's on the call with me. I'm saying this sure. like genuinely, you are a gifted instructor. And I've been teaching now for probably around 15 years. And you sometimes I would audit other classes and you can see there's teachers who know what they're talking about. And there's people who know how to make great things. Okay, so those are two different kinds of people. People who are like kind of great at teaching, but maybe aren't practitioners. And then they're great practitioners who don't know how to teach. And then you have to add this last component in. And I was just talking to Nick Campbell about this. You have to also be entertaining and engaging. Yes. So that's like when you think like there's a personality on TV, they've got a lot of charisma, but somebody's writing the script, somebody's doing the lighting, somebody's moving the camera, all that kind of stuff. Now you have to take all those three components, these three separate people, and you have to jam them together. And you don't have many people like that. So Joey's one of those kinds of people. You can tell just in the way he speaks, like the I, I kind of think in my mind, like you're sending keyframes for the way you speak because you'll stretch something out. There's the <laughs> anticipation and then you overshoot and talk really fast. And that's awesome because otherwise you have this kind of very monotone, almost like a linear keyframe. And I love it, that you're boring. <laughs> I, I, I look at you metaphor. like that. I Literally, I'm thinking of you yeah. in animation keyframes. Well, here, let me say something about this. Yeah, that, go ahead. I've, I've, I've thought about this a lot, actually, um, because we've had, you know, in trying to scale School of Motion, we're looking for talent, like, and, and you know, and you, you, I know I've talked to Nick about this. I've talked to you about this. Like, you're right. It is very hard to, to find people who can, who can who want to do this period, <laughs> right? Who are like, okay, not doing, but teaching. Um, and like are good enough at the doing part and the teaching part and can be entertaining and engaging. And I've tried to kind of reverse engineer it a little bit because I've, I'm like, well, maybe we can teach people to, to do this. Like, is it just innate? Cause I, and to the truth is I don't like that idea that like, I'm just lucky that like I was born with the personality like because I, I wasn't always like this. And the the thing and it's funny because I, I was thinking about this before we talked today, like when I was at toil even and I'd have to get on conference calls, my business partners would tell me you're really good at conference calls. You're good at talking and your voice goes up and down. The reason that my voice does this is because I was a voiceover artist. And I learned oh. to do this. I did not don't always reveal talk your like secrets, this. dude. Now we yeah. all. Oh, yeah. No, I'm serious. And, and there's this idea that I've kind of latched onto of having a talent stack where Scott Adams is the, he's the creative of Dilbert. And I think he writes about this on his blog. That's where I got the word talent stack. But it's the idea that I'm not like the best. I'm not in the top 10 of anything I do. I'm not in the top 10 of animating or teaching or designing or writing or speaking or making websites. 
but I might be in the, I don't know, like the top thousand. Like I'm, I'm like at least B, B plus at all those things. And when you put them all together, you get this, in, it's way more than the sum of its parts. Um, I also was, um, for a long time, for probably 15 years, I played in bands. Like I, I was a drummer and I'd play shows all the time. And so I got used to being in front of people and performing and emoting in front of people. And so I got comfortable with that. And it's like, well, how, what is that? How is that going to help you build a successful online school? Well, I didn't know at the time that it would, but it has, you know, because when I have to get up at Adobe Video World or NAB, a post-production world and talk in front of a crowd, I don't get nervous at all. Um, I actually love it. I kind of thrive on it now, but it reminds me of the first few times I would go play a show on stage and I'd be terrified and I couldn't sleep the night before, but I pushed through that 15 years ago and now it's coming back to help me. So um, I guess like what what I would say to people who, who want to like do something like this, um, try to try to just make yourself a, a whole person, a well-rounded person and don't worry about like, well, you know, I really like playing guitar, but it's not advancing my career at all. It might, you don't know, you know, like I, I never thought being a voiceover artist would help me make tutorials, which would help me start school. That's not how I approached it. I was just like, this is cool. I wonder where this will go. Um, it's more like my approach was always, oh, this will be interesting. Let's see what happens. And then 10 years later, it turns out to be like the, the linchpin, you know? Well, looking back, you would say, duh voiceover artists right. doing tutorials where mostly you just hear your voice. So that makes a <laughs> lot of sense, Joey. <laughs> right, right. If you said, um, you know, I took that ceramics class and I learned how to throw pottery. Right, right. Like, uh, that doesn't quite. Yeah. Okay. It's awesome. I, I haven't heard that term, talent stack. Thanks for introducing that to me. And I'm going to throw a term back at you just because. Okay. Just because. Uh, this one's from Brian Tracy. Uh, I don't know if it's his term, but I'm reading about it in his book. And it's called a KRA, KRA, Key Result Area. And he says, you need to know what skill levels that you have that line up with a specific job. So, for example, if you're in sales, your KRA, your core skills, if you will, might be prospecting, establishing rapport, identifying problems, presenting solutions, answering objections, closing the sale, and getting resales and referrals from satisfied customers. Those are KRAs for a salesperson. Now, it's interesting as we... I was just reading that. That's kind of what you did on the phone. You're establishing rapport. You're prospecting. You're identifying problems on the call with your mental checklist, asking those really great questions to see what kind of problem are we trying to solve? What's the messaging all about? And then when you had an answer, you were presenting the solution. So think about that, you guys. Sometimes we look at a particular field and we assume it to be a certain thing, but actually sit down and write them out. It'll help you out a lot. Yeah, and I think, too, like, it's kind of scary to do that because nobody likes to think that they're bad at something that they want to be good at. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I'm like anyone else. Like, I avoid bad news as much as possible. And so I don't want to – it's actually one of, it's one of my Achilles heels with School of Motion is, like, if we put some piece of content out, I should be looking at it to see how it's performing. But sometimes I get afraid, like, oh – because it felt good, but what if no one cared, you know? And what if no one watched it? Um, and that's really dangerous and I think counterproductive. And so now what I do is I, um, there's this great book, I can't remember the author's name, but it's called Eat That Frog. Um, and it's, you don't need to read it. The, 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 the thought in that book is first thing in the morning, do the most stressful thing in your day, just get it over with. Because that's when you have the most mental energy. 
And so um, whenever I have to like look at something or I have to review something I recorded the day before to see did it suck or not, I do it first thing in the morning. Literally like I'll wake up and I'll make coffee and while I'm making coffee, I'll do that and then it's over with. So like try that if you're know if if you trying to improve your animation skills, your design skills and you're like, well, I could go post this on you know, mograph.net and uh, have somebody shred it, but I'm afraid to do it at like five in the morning, like, because you'll be able to do it then. At 4 p.m. you won't be able to, you'll just, you'll be too chicken. Great. So I actually wrote down your entire business model, business plan here. So I'm gonna read it out to you guys in case you're following along, okay? Here's how you launch a multi-million dollar company. Here we go. First thing you do is you create a blog. And you're going to just test your idea out. And what you want to do is give value to people. And when you see you got something that people like, you go all in on that. So this is when Joey goes on his 30 days of After Effects. So now he's going deep into value delivery and he's collecting emails. So he created what they would call like an email trap. You give content and people will give you their emails because they want more of this. And now you're identifying who your engaged customers or potential customers are. Now, because he did this and he did it in a very genuine way, he got some free PR in the form of motionographer. So that pushed a lot more eyeballs on onto his site. He's building up his email list and now he's getting up to eight, 9,000 emails. So he decides to do a pre-sale, further validating his concept if it's going to work or not. And in the webinar, he sold $5,000 worth of sales in five minutes. That told him, definitely go go do this and you have something. And now he's forced himself into creating the product and even on the webinar depending on what people respond to you can change the the curriculum if you will it's like oh that part i didn't think they would love they're eating that stuff up so there's your model you guys in one two three six steps how you launch a multi-million dollar business it doesn't happen overnight but this is a really good blueprint yeah, it doesn't happen overnight, but it happened a lot faster than you'd think. And and I have to say too, like that model, I did not invent that at all. Like that is a fairly standard model for a lot of online businesses. And once I once I and and I have to say too, like around the time I was doing 30 days of After Effects and even before that, I sort of started doing what a lot of entrepreneurs do. Actually, the the term I'll use is wantrepreneur. It's like, you know, I, I ha- wasn't yet really an entrepreneur, um, but I wanted to be. I listened to every podcast and read every article and read the E-Myth, you know, E-Myth book revisited and Lean Startup. And you like I binged on all of those books that like if you Google entrepreneur, that's what comes up. Um, there's a podcast called the Smart Passive Income Podcast. It's one of the most popular business podcast on iTunes and the host Pat Flynn literally like when I when I moved from Massachusetts to Florida I had to drive my car down by myself it was just me and my cat and I listened to like 50 episodes of that thing and a lot of the things I did I did because I heard Pat or one of his guests say to do it on that website and so and and once I started doing it every time like my wife goes to a cooking blog to get a recipe and there's a little pop-up saying like download 100 free recipes I know what it is now and then she, oh, cool, and she'll put her email in, and then she gets asked, oh, we're doing a webinar on, like, you know, fall recipes, and and then they're, they're, it's a sales funnel. Like, I get it now, and I see it, and I was doing it without knowing what it was or why it worked, but I was just doing what other people did that worked and sort of stumbled into what School of Motion is. It was, 
I mean, it was targeted and I wanted it to work, but I didn't have this master plan in my head. Like I'm gonna do this and this and this, and then this is gonna happen. And then I'm gonna hire someone. It was like, I was constantly reacting for the first year and a half. And it's only been the last probably six months that I feel like we're planning ahead <laughs> and we're building for the future. Okay, let's, let's segue now into the business stuff. Cause okay. I didn't want to tease our audience. I'm not actually touch upon this. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. If you don't feel comfortable talking about it, we can either edit it out or just don't answer and we'll move on. Okay. Now, you mentioned there's five of you. Yes. Now, is that five plus you or four plus you? There's four plus me. Okay. Can you tell me just briefly like what the roles are? Because uh, I want to get in my mind like the makeup of your company. Sure. Okay. So I am the, I guess, CEO is the term. Um, but my role at this point is I'm really kind of the content director. Um, so I run our podcast, um, you know, I interview guests and stuff like that. Um, I do make content, not nearly as much as I used to. And mostly what I'm doing now is, um, working with, uh, outside contributors. Um, we have three people right now building courses for us. Um, and actually just recruited a fourth one and possibly a fifth one. Um, and the way we do our courses, anyone who's taken one of our courses knows they are absolutely absurdly packed with content. They take on average, probably four months to build sometimes six months. So, and I spend a lot of time with, uh, with the people doing that to help make sure that they're good and showing them how to do podcast interviews and stuff like that. Um, then we have uh, Amy, and Amy is our content manager, and she's been with me since the 30 days of After Effects. I hired her. She's the first person I ever hired. She uh, came on part-time initially and then full-time probably six months later, and her role has shifted and morphed, and I, you know, I've had to learn even how to like how to figure out like what role people should be in and what they're good at and what they're not good at. And the role she's in now, and she's just crushing it is she essentially sets our content calendar. She books guests for us. Um, she's still doing podcast editing and some of the, the copy editing and stuff like that. Although I, I feel like eventually we'll need someone to do that. We just hired uh, a new team member, Caleb, and he came over from a company called Premium Beat and he was on their content marketing team and he does video tutorials and articles and he's just like this brilliant, you know, content person who understands motion design, um, which, you know, again, a very hard thing to find. You can find people who can write, find people who can make videos, but who know After Effects also. <laughs> like, it's kind of rare. Um, we have uh, Corey. Corey is our community ambassador, which basically means he does customer support, but he also... Our community, frankly, is our most valuable asset. So we have an alumni group. Um, we have over 2,000 alumni now, and we have this Facebook group that all of our alumni get access to. And I think there's a close to like 1,300 people in it now. And it's insanely engaged. And Corey literally lives on there. And like, if someone asks a question, usually within 10 seconds, someone answers it. But if not, Corey will forward it to, to one of our team members. Um, he makes sure everyone's taken care of. We do things like, um, when someone does an awesome piece of work and they share it, like we'll send them a t-shirt. Um, so he kind of is like the voice of school motion to our students. He's like the liaison. And while students are in courses, he makes sure everyone is able to like, you know, understand how our platform works, stuff like that. Uh, and then finally we have Elena who is, I guess our product manager. I initially hired her because I, I wanted 
in my mind, the term was a producer. I wanted some, I'm uh, really scatterbrained. Like I really just like to go, 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 go and not think about, ah, I don't want to have a checklist and I don't want to use Trello and all this stuff. Um, and, and that worked just fine to a certain scale and then stuff started to fall through the cracks all day long. So I needed someone to help me keep track of everything that we're doing. And I brought her on for that, but it turns out she's actually, she's great at that, but she's amazing at managing software development, which turns out we needed. Um, we started building uh, a brand new software platform from scratch with developers and everything, um, back in like November or October. Uh, of 2016 and it's now May of 2017 and we are launching I think in like three weeks Um, and she's been managing a team of four sometimes five software developers uh, and at the same time making sure that like the operations part of school motion is still happening so that's the full-time component of course there's all oh go ahead I want I I yeah dig in dig in yeah I'm just trying to understand it so Corey is basically, if you're talking to somebody online in the community, chances are he's responding to you. That's like your doppelganger online, right? Does he operate as Corey or does he operate as Joey? So it depends. So he operates okay. as Corey. So okay. like if, uh, you know, any student who's taken one of our courses in the last, you know, year knows who Corey is. Um, and so if you ask a question in the context of like one of our courses or our alumni site, um, you know, I mean, I'm on there too. Like people tag me and I am, I, I'm not like absent or anything. I'm still there. Um, but that's Corey's full-time gig is to like, make sure our students are taken care of and happy. And if someone needs a refund, he, he does that. And if they have questions before they buy the course, he, you know, he's, he's set up, um, you know, uh, standard operating procedures, like to answer that stuff. Um, but if, but like, you know, for now anyway, um, my Twitter account at school of motion, it's still me. Um, Corey will schedule things like if we're like promoting content, he'll schedule stuff that we use tools to let him like use my Twitter account and use our Facebook account. Um, but if you get on our main Facebook page and you ask a question to us, it's, it goes into, we use a software called Zendesk that lets us like manage all of our support. And, um, and so it's usually Corey answering that. But what happens is if you ask a technical question, Hey, how do I do this in After Effects? Corey doesn't know. So what he does is he comes and he brings that to our, our Slack channel, which has a ton of motion designers in it. And he asks, he gets an answer and then he relays it back. So we've kind of worked out this system where, um, so far, and it's probably getting to the point where one person might not be able to do it all. Um, I mean, the, the amount, before we hired Corey, I was spending about three hours a day answering emails. Let's put it that way. Um, and now I get to inbox zero every morning in about 10 minutes. And then at the end of the day in about 10 more minutes. So like, um, that's, uh, that's something that every entrepreneur who starts a business online will have to do at some point. You will start to get swamped with emails. Chris, I'm sure you're getting there. Yep. And <laughs> that's why I'm taking notes, man. Yeah. 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 You'll get to that point. And you and, and you ask yourself, you know, would you pay someone a thousand dollars an hour <laughs> to answer a customer support question? It's like, well, no, well then hire a customer support person. <laughs> um, and it's, I, I, we waited a long time to do it because I was just, I'm, I, I'm always very nervous to hire and, it's just kind of like something I've had to kind of get over. You know, it's scary to, to hire people. Um, but it was one of the smartest things we ever did to bring on Corey. And he's the perfect person to do it. Like he, you know, our, our our brand, our brand voice is we do not take ourselves seriously. We're silly. We like make puns and we post weird gifs and we curse sometimes. And so everyone who works for us has to 
embody that that it's it's just required um and corey has got this quirky sense of personality and it and it just fits and it's awesome all right um that makes a lot of sense and it seems like that question what is your time worth it's come up three times already let's see if yeah. we can do it one more time thematically link it throughout the entire show sure. all right so you're the content director you're probably the editor not like you're cutting the videos or anything but the editor in terms of working with other instructors looking at their materials and saying hey you're you're shaping that a little bit right and you're saying it takes a lot of time so i i, I want to understand the business model a little bit i want to ask you more questions about all these people but now now my brain is going all scattered and i'm not usually like that so let me hit you up with this your courses run is it three or four times a year we just switched this year to doing it four times a year. So just okay. like a, a regular school. Like a quarter system. A quarter system, yep. And so how long are the classes? How long do they run for? So they last 12 weeks total, but the actual instruction usually only lasts eight or nine weeks. And built into those eight or nine weeks, we have down weeks that we call catch-up weeks. Um, this is something that we've had strug- we've struggled with explaining correctly. If you sign up for a course, the full experience takes 12 weeks, but you're pretty much done with like the classes after eight or nine weeks, assuming you can keep up with with the pace, which a ton of students can, and that's why we made it 12 weeks. So you can actually stretch it out as long as you want to. Um, but yeah, so so 12 weeks start to finish, and then there's usually you know a couple weeks off, and then the next one starts up. How many students are you taking on per app? Like, when does the class fill up? Because there is this kind of personal critique part to it. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming then there's a capacity. So how many students can get in on on a particular class? Well, we use, um, we've hired teaching assistants for all of our classes. And these are people who've gone through the classes and have done really well. And then we bring them on and we sort of like help them learn how to critique and, and stuff like that. Um, and then they basically become like the first line of defense. If you have tech, technical questions, you ask them, they, they critique. Um, it's really amazing. Like even just using email and Facebook, they sort of the student TA relationship. It's very much like a student teacher relationship at a school. Um, but yeah, they can only handle a certain number of students and it kind of varies depending on the class. Um, so like our animation bootcamp class, that's the first one I ever did. The one that I told the story about that one has capacity currently for 200 students. Um, we have four teaching assistants and their capacity is, is 50 students per teaching assistant. Um, and that's actually asking a lot, (laughs) but we pay them hourly. So like, you know, if, if they, if we have more students and they have to work more, they, they do get paid more for that. Um, and then our design class actually is doing almost as well as the animation class and the character animation class has less students in it usually. So we have two teaching assistants for that. Um, but I mean, currently if we sold out all three classes, um, that work in this way, we, we would have 500 students, um, going through at one time. Um, and this last set, this last session, which, uh, is ending in a few weeks, I think we ended up with 460 students or 450 students, something like that. Um, so it, it I mean, which is crazy. I mean, it, you know, to start out with like 20 students in the first session and then realizing, okay, well, I can't, 
I can't be critiquing and build the next class, you know? Um, so I need someone else to critique. Okay, let's hire teaching assistants. Oh, that worked well. Okay, oh, the class keeps selling out. Maybe we should hire two more teaching assistants and expand the capacity and, um, you know, just sort of like slowly, slowly trying to figure out how I can um, remove myself as the bottleneck from, from the equation. This is Joey from School of Motion and you are listening to the future. The Future is hosted by me, Chris Doe. The show is edited by Stuart Schuster. Big thanks to Adam Sanborn, who composed our theme song. To subscribe to The Future Podcast, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now SoundCloud. Make sure you rate and review our episodes. Don't miss out on upcoming events, live streams, workshops, and announcements by going to thefuture.com and sign up for the newsletter link at the bottom. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The future is here. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. See you in the future. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.